today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Again, that's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the seat underneath you, in front of you, uh, and you can turn to page 780. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick and in prison, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart, me, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous will into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Check. All right, great. Good morning. It's good to be here, share the word of God with you. Uh, before I start, I just want to have three quick announcements. We've been going through some catechisms about the Sabbath and I've had some emails and some questions about it, and I really appreciate it. I'm so happy that people are willing to just sit and learn. And so <clears throat> if you want to, in the back of the bulletin, and especially on the online version of the bulletin, we have a longer explanation. And if that explanation doesn't fully satisfy and you have more questions, uh, then feel free to ask me. A brother here did email me and I'll email them back. Uh, but there are some really good questions, like even today, we did the whole recreation. Oh my gosh, we're playing basketball. We're going completely against the Sabbath here. What do we do? And so how do we, how do we, how do we explain that and things of that nature? And I, I, I wish one day we could just do like a whole sermon series on the Sabbath, and there's a debate between the Puritans and then the Reformers and all these things about what recreation is. But I'll just give you a simple answer, but like I said, you can look up further. Recreation, when this was written, the Westminster Catechism, uh, recreation is really known as something that you do for self-pleasure, okay? And so when you go on, let's say, vacation or something, that's self-pleasure, something that we stay away from. And so as much as we can, what we do is we gather with the saints, and then we edify one another. We encourage one another, and that could be by playing basketball. It could be by eating. It could be doing exactly what we're doing here, which is our spiritual act of worship. That's my short answer, okay? And so continue to study, continue to sit in study, and continue to learn and grow. My brothers and sisters, I'm so happy 
that uh, you have all these questions. The second announcement is really quick. This is quicker. Smaller group leaders uh, will meet right after service today, right? I don't want to send out an email reminder all the time, just uh, block off the fourth Sunday, but I wanted to give out one reminder one more time. Smaller group leaders, we're going to meet right after service. And my last announcement is this. Um, <clears throat> Lent is coming up, and during Lent, I've always wanted a, a sort of challenge, not because you have to. Remember, if you don't do anything, it's, that doesn't like condemn you or it doesn't bless you by doing it. However, um, I do like to have a challenge every once in a while. Lent is a nice excuse to do it. So at times I've done like physical fasts. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is uh, just to drink liquids. And so when you only drink liquids for about 40 days, you smell every ingredient and spice of the person eating whatever food. It's really a fascinating experience. Uh, if you do decide to do it, I do ask that you let me know so I can pray for you and then I can tell you what not to do. Like, don't just drink water. You will die. And so drink like a milkshake every once in a while. It's fine. Uh, you lose all your muscle mass. And so just be prepared. And so when I was doing these things and there was a song that we sang, it's like, um, all of my gains now fade away. And then I was like, this is so real, God. <laughs> and so there's a song that we sing literally with that lyric, all of my gains now fade away. It's like, yes. But um, I wanted to do something a little bit different this year. And then I told Junsuk about it. And he said, you know what, can I do it with you? And maybe some other people will want to do it with you. And I said, okay, sure. Um, so if you want to do it with me, this is not a church-wide thing, but if you want to do it with me, this is pretty heavy. Um, don't do it if you can't finish it. Uh, but I want to do uh, a full Bible reading in 40 days. So there's about 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you split it up into 40 days, that's a little over 29 chapters a day. It's not including uh, Psalm 119. This is an... This is a, a feat if you can do this. Uh, I gathered, if you're a fast reader, um, you could probably read it about in 45 minutes to an hour a day. But if you don't want to, if you really want to stay in it, then I would suggest um, you would need to block off about one to two hours every day just to read this. And I was thinking one to two hours every night, I just kind of come home and turn on something in the streaming services that I have. So you know what? That, that just needs to be blocked out. And I want to do the entire uh, Bible in just 40 days. Um, obviously, you all who have done Lent with me know that Lent is 46 days because there's Sundays included. So there's no reading on Sundays. Uh, Hezu did this amazing bookmark. Uh, and so if you want to do it with me, just take a bookmark and then you can plug it in. Uh, the font is a little small and no magnifying glasses included with the bookmark. So we did, uh, we printed out a full page for you. Uh, if you want to do it, just take one. But I would like to ask that you let me know. I'll pray with you. Uh, this, is, this is pretty intense. I don't know if you remember Elder Kang and I remember we did the 90 day and that was pretty crazy. This is more than double that. So um, if you want to do it. If this is too much, but you want to participate in some kind of Bible reading, then I have taken the liberty of splitting up this 40-day Bible reading into four parts. There's four parts every day. One is the Old Testament and the prophets, 
And then the second one is wisdom literature, the third one is the Gospels, and the fourth one is the rest of the New Testaments. There's always four sections. So if you skip the Old Testament part and you skip the wisdom literature, then you just have to read the last two sections, which is the Gospel and the New Testament. And that shortens your reading time from an hour to about 20 to 30 minutes. And then you could finish the whole New Testament in 40 days. If you like, that's not enough of a challenge. I want to do more. Then you can add on the third, uh, which is technically the second column, and I'll clear it up by Wednesday. You can add the wisdom literature, so you will do the whole New Testament and the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So you'll do all of that. But if you want to take the whole 40-day um, with the Old Testament, that's all of that. So this is exciting stuff. Um, I just think, you know what, this is great. We all do like some kind of Bible reading program or devotional, I assume, so this would be on top of that. And if you want to do it, uh, please let me know. I would love to pray for you and to encourage you, and hopefully we could do it together. I was even imagining, you know, just on Saturday mornings, we just uh, take the rest of the time to catch up if anybody needs to catch up. But yeah, I, I didn't like lessen any of it, right? If you really want to do this with me, this is a commitment, one to two hours every day. And then on Wednesday, I'll let you know exactly how I'll be doing the reading because it's not just reading, it's reflecting and reflecting and study on top of that. So it's a little intense, but like I said, if you want to do something to that effect, I invite you to do it with me. If you just want to do New Testament, that's still amazing. A New Testament in 40 days, you would have read all the Gospels and all the letters and Revelation and things of that nature. So. Think about it. I gave the, a little template to you early, and Hesu did this really great bookmark that you can keep in your Bible, um, and then so we can do that together. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Let your gospel, O Lord, come to us, not only in word, but in power and in much assurance, and in your Holy Spirit, so that we can be guided into all truth, strengthened into all obedience and enduring all of your will with joyfulness that abounding in the work of faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the last section of the Olivet Discourse. We've gone through the temple destruction the abomination of the desolation, the parousia, and last week we went over the two parables. The last of the two parables, uh, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And if you've been following closely, you will have noticed two overtly major themes in this discourse. It goes across the whole discourse. Two overtly major themes. And number one is the call to vigilance. The call to vigilance. And number two is the call to urgency. It's the call to urgency. And if you've been going to church for a while, you would have noticed that the, the greatest threat and challenge to your sanctification and your maturation in Christ is not taking these two warnings seriously. It's when you don't take these two warnings seriously. That's when sin also creeps in. That's when we get lazy. But Jesus here is specifically 
calling his disciples to vigilance and urgency and to take these warnings seriously. Before we got into this passage, passage the last servant, servant in that parable of the talents, servant, he knew who the Lord was. He even acknowledged him as much. He called him Kyrios, which means master, but it also means Lord in the Greek. But there was, if you looked at the tone of that last master with the one talent, he buried it, there was a tone of clear disdain. He knew who God was, but there was disdain. And you could hear it. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground here. You have what's yours. That was the tone. And the master will take this wicked and slothful servant, calling him a worthless servant, cast him out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is to literally grind your teeth together. And when do you grind your teeth together? When you're in pain. When you're in pain. When you feel intense pain. Imagine you stubbed your pinky toe on that table leg for the third time today. But in Acts 7, there's more to that than gnashing, when you refer to gnashing of teeth. In Acts 7, Stephen would tell the Jewish council the truth about what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. In Psalm 37, verse 12, it says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth against them. And just like that, the last servant exhibited, he exhibited anger. At who? At God. At God. And a good reminder from last week is that These aren't people. Jesus isn't talking to people who've never heard of Jesus. Time and time again, we see people refer to Jesus as Lord, so they know of him, but they do not know him. And what's even more frightening than that, than not knowing him, what's even more frightening is the Lord does not know them. You know, We're coming to the end of Matthew, and one of the hardest passages that I've had to preach on in Matthew was Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus turns to the people who call him, Lord, Lord, he responds by saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. I will contend to you that in the closing of this discourse, Jesus' words are even more serious more severe than Matthew chapter 7. And this passage today is chock full of theological doctrines as well as, as well as the consequences of disobedience to clear teaching that Jesus is giving. At the very minimum, it shows us three clear doctrines that for people, for whatever reason, these three Christian doctrines, they have hated and fought against these doctrines, but they are clearly here just in this passage. And these three are the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of hell, and the doctrine of final judgment. Predestination, hell, 
and final judgment are what people rage against. But it's clear as we will see as we go through this passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is the first time in Jesus' ministry he refers to himself not just as the Son of Man, but it's with a glory. It's with a weight, commanding angels and sitting on a glorious throne. This would have thrown the person back who's reading this. It would throw you back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is sitting in glory, in a glorious throne, which means he is not just judge, but Jesus is king. In verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. All the nations means all peoples will stand before this king. All the world will stand before Jesus. There is a separation between sheep and goats which is reminiscent of the parable between the wheat and tares but we won't get into that again. Uh, you can look at it up in the sermon series. I think Pastor Paul preached on that one. But sheep and goats, there's a separation between sheep and goats in ancient Israel and even in the countryside today where when you take uh, your flock out to graze, your sheep and goats, you would let them graze together. You would let them graze together. Uh, but at night, you have to separate them. So this is a very familiar illustration that Jesus is using for the people that are listening. So you would have seen sheep and goat in the pastures just grazing while you were walking along the road, but at night the shepherd would separate them. In fact, if you didn't look closely, sometimes you would have a hard time telling the difference between sheep and goat, especially if you had sheared the wool off the sheep. Um, it's because at night... Uh, the sheep could tolerate cool air because they had that coat, but the goats needed to be herded together because they, they have hair, they don't have wool, so they need to be warm. So they would herd the goats together and they would separate the sheep and the goats. So these are well-known pastoral details or shepherding details because pastor means shepherd, right? These are well-known pastoral details, but this particular story is fraught with symbolism. Not only does the Son of Man separate them, but he places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The right hand in almost every culture symbolizes a place of honor and power. Even in our westernized culture, we still say things like, he's my or she's my right hand person. Right hand man, right hand woman. But the right hand would have meant a place of honor and power. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a notable change from Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man. And if you've noticed, it used to be Son of Man, Son of Man, the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man, Son of Man. And all of a sudden, in verse 34, he is now referring to himself as what? The King. Then the King will say to those on his right, Again, we see the prophecy of Daniel become clearer and clearer as we go on. And when he addresses the sheep, when the king, when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, he addresses the sheep, he addresses them with this address. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. The word blessed here in the Greek isn't makarioi. Makariori is the word blessed, but that was the word used for the Sermon on the Mount. If you, were, if you remember, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those if you are persecuted. Remember, that is makarioi, but that's not this word blessed here. Come you who are, it doesn't say makariori, it says here, come you who are, and the word here for blessed is eulogamenoi. And eulogamenoi is the word blessed used in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, it says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the word here. That's the word blessed here. Eulogamenoi is a term that bestows, bestows honor. This is incredible because of how Jesus is now bestowing honor to the sheep on his right. What is this honor? He goes, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The blessed are now to take their inheritance, the kingdom. And it was prepared for them before even the foundation of the world. This presupposes that he knew the sheep even before he created them. Even before all of creation, if you are one of God's sheep, that means he knew you before he even made you. What? How does that even make any sense? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How is this possible? God chose his people before they could do anything or merit anything? Secondly, why would he do this? Why in the world would he do this? And if you ask me, what makes, if you ask me, what makes you think you're better than me? What makes you think you're so much better than me that God would choose you over me? And I would say, I don't know. I would have no answer because if you did ask me that, I know I'm not better than you. My cry is, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the Bible makes it clear, doesn't it? It makes it clear. I didn't say it makes it easy, but it makes it clear. And that's why people still rage about this doctrine. But it is clear, 
And I might add, it is sobering. It is sobering because we see that he predestined us, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I know that God does what is pleasurable to him according to his will, and this is according to his will that I have been predestined. Number two, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, verse 29, excuse me, for God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, to the sheep, this is incredible news. Do you know why? To the sheep, this idea that God would choose us before we could do anything is incredible news. You know why? Because deep in my heart of hearts, I know that I am not worthy of God's love, his sacrifice, his mercy, and grace. I know that better than you. I know how wretched I am better than any one of you know how wretched I am. And if I could somehow lose my faith, I would lose it. Wretched man that I am is a cry that Paul made in Romans 8, but it wasn't a cry before he was saved. It was a cry that he wrote after he was saved. If we could lose our salvation, we would. If sin could capture us again, it would. But this is what we understand to be simul justus et peccator, simultaneously a, a sinner and justify. So why is this doctrine such great news for the believer? Because it means that God has secured you into glory. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Blessed. Well, if that's the case, well, if that's the case, why does Jesus mention any works at all? Why can't he just go, I picked you, you're the lucky ones, come on in. I didn't pick you, suckers, haha. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that, right? Why does Jesus mention any works at all? This is what we have to understand as Christians, what works are. Now, I'm not saying easy stuff to you now, so I hope that you're paying attention. Works are evidential, Works are evidential, they are not causal. Okay, works are evidential, they are not causal. It is not by your works you are saved, but your salvation that gives you works. Works do not save you, but you are saved unto works. This is the key difference between Christianity and every other religion or belief system in the world. And this would answer the critic's question, well, if you are predestined, who cares if you do any work at all? Again, this questioning does not understand the fundamental difference between Christianity and all other belief systems. What they're doing is they're putting their worldview into Christianity, and that just doesn't work. Because the better question would be, if you are predestined, why wouldn't you do any works? If you are predestined, why wouldn't you do works? Because bottom line is this. What we are to get 
is only God can change the heart. Only God can change the heart. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in a prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And we see the evidence and fruit that Jesus is now putting on display. Now there are three parties in this teaching. Who are the three parties? Number one is Jesus. Number two is the sheep. Number three is the goats. Of the three parties, who gets surprised? Who gets surprised? The sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats. Both the sheep and the goats ask Jesus the same question. Lord, when did we see you? Blankety blank. And Jesus' answer is effectively the same to both parties. Truly I say to you, whatever you did or didn't do to the least of these, my brothers, you did or didn't do to me. Okay? I want you to keep this in mind. And then he goes to the ones on his left. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also, then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The goats, in contrast, are cursed, and the condemnation is worse and even more awful than Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here, he curses them and casts them into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But now also, this place that was prepared for the devil and his angels are for those who did not have compassion on the least of these. Again, the goats knew of God. They call him Lord, but it doesn't matter. So I'm going to go back to the surprise of the sheep and the goats. The first thing to note is what they weren't surprised about. What were they not surprised about? They weren't surprised at the king's placement of the sheep and goats. They were surprised at the reason he gave them. Number two, the sheep were surprised and would make it impossible to think that it was by works based on righteousness. Works based righteousness is 
what's impossible if you knew the sheep were surprised. The sheep didn't treat the least of these with dignity and honor to get saved. And if the goats thought that just treating people compassionately would have earned their way into heaven, they would have done that in the first place. Text, give me to 44044 and give five bucks. I did that, so I did something. Jesus is showing the heart. If I love Christ with all my heart, and I perceive, if I love Christ with all my heart, and I perceive that Christ is in you, how would I treat you? Even if you were poor, sick, imprisoned, hungry, thirsty, naked, and a stranger. You see, brothers and sisters align themselves with one another in distress and afflictions because they identify with the Christ who is in them. How do you treat your brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you even care? This is why I honestly believe that you cannot be a good Christian if you don't covenant yourself to the local church. A local body is where you can literally exercise the very things that are mentioned here. Why do I say covenant? You know, why do you keep on saying covenant? Why can't we just chill and relax? Covenant seems too serious, Puge. Ugh, it's too serious of a commitment. And I agree. If you say that to me, I agree. It is a serious commitment. It's a commitment you should not take lightly. But so is marriage. Marriage is very serious. You know why? Because the love that you declare for one another is not just some fling. It's a sacred, lifelong covenant of love. The more serious the relationship, the more serious the covenant should follow. All right, I get that much. What about abuse? I've heard of many churches abusing their power, especially the leaders abusing their power and hurting those inside. And I agree with you. I believe that God does reserve hotter places in hell for those that abuse their authority to harm and deter people from knowing the true God. I believe that if you stand behind the pulpit to preach the word of God, there should be fear and trembling of every preacher that stands to give the word of God because they will be judged according to what they say. However, however, just because there is a chance your boss might not be the greatest boss and may mistake, make mistakes from time to time, are you then never going to get a job? That's a ridiculous notion. You know why? Because you need to make money. So what is the local church? Isn't it Christ's body? Doesn't Ephesians command you to submit to one another in Christ? Submit to covenant, to put yourself under. And if you're listening to this, you might be visiting us. You might be visiting us or even have been attending for a while. I am going to say this to you. Do not be idle. It doesn't even have to be this church, but it has to be a church. 
It has to be a church. I like this one, though. I admit I am biased. I think our church is great. Not perfect, but it's great. I asked Hester to make this bookmark like literally five hours before you got this, and she spent the five hours just designing this. I think we have many brothers and sisters with that kind of heart just to help out. You know who's going to do this? I don't know. I honestly thought maybe four or five people would take, uh, take me up on this challenge, but made the bookmark anyway for four or five people. I don't know. Maybe it'll be 100. Okay. <laughs> it's not perfect. It's not perfect, but I think it's great. God has set up people that love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. Our women's gathering is literally called Edify. And they're going to gather on Friday to do this thing called Kintsugi. I think the way you pronounce it in Japanese is Kintsugi. But anyway, I, I, I did this and people are like, that's really insensitive. It's like, to whom? And so I do it in Japan and they don't find it. Anyway, but anyway, but Kintsugi, anyway, come and do it. Uh, I think it'll be a great time. But our women's gathering is literally called Edify. Its main purpose is to encourage one another. That's what we're here to do. We're here to encourage one another. And so how do we encourage one another? Number one, I want to tell you, do not give up meeting. Don't give up meeting. Hebrews 10, 25, don't give up meeting together. Come to our gatherings. Come to a local church gathering as you submit to them. Sunday worship at 10 a.m., good job. Saturday morning at 8 a.m., we can do better. Smaller group meetings throughout the week. Larger groups every third Sunday of every month. This is where we can stir each other up to do good works. You know, when you do any kind of regimen, discipline, working out, exercise, it's not just fun when you do it with somebody else. It's necessary. You know when working out or exercise or discipline becomes necessary? When you, have, when you need someone, becomes, needing someone becomes necessary, it's when you have a goal. You don't need anybody to go to the gym and just walk on the treadmill for an hour. Anybody can do that. But let's say your goal is to increase strength and it's to lift a weight you've never lifted before. You need someone to spot you. And that's when it becomes fun. We were meant to do these things together. And I can attest to this necessity even as an extreme introvert. My wife is in Korea. People have asked me, how's your life without Esther? And I always go, great, because I do the same thing every day and I love it. I just go home, read a book. Uh, I haven't watched TV these days. There's nothing really to watch. But read a book, play on my phone games, and I'm good to go. You know, that kind of thing. It's fine. Um, and if you ask me out to coffee or dinner, I'm free. But... Even as an extreme introvert, I want to tell you, being with somebody when you have a goal is absolutely necessary. It's necessary. And this is what the Bible understands, especially the more intense and special and important the discipline is. Okay? How important is this goal? The more important it is, the more you should take this seriously. Come to our gatherings. Sunday, 10 a.m., Saturday, 8 a.m. And Saturday, 8 a.m., we pray for our church. We pray together as a leadership. We pray together praying for every single one of our needs. If you have a need, submit it to us. We'll pray for you on Saturday. Smaller group meetings throughout the week. Keep each other accountable. Larger groups every third Sunday where we can continue to stir each other up to do good works. How else can you do it? Well, 
You know how the world will get drunk when it wants to have fun or crunk? But a changed life sees that lifestyle as bankrupt. In Ephesians 5, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, and here it is, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what really fills the heart and soul? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing to each other. We sing to that to each other. Did you know that? Did you notice that some of the songs that we sing isn't directly to God, but it's to each other? We literally just sang one too right before. This is how we are to do it. This is how God commands us, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what really fills the heart and soul? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing to each other. This is how we can do to the least of the people in our church. This is how we do or don't do to the least of the church. In when we do or don't do to the least in this church, we do or don't do to Jesus. You know, when Saul, now the Apostle Paul, but Saul was persecuting Christians, he was putting to, the, to death, he was actually traveling, not for vacation or recreation, he was traveling to find other Christians to kill them. And when he was stopped by Jesus, Jesus says, who, he goes, who are you? He goes, I am Jesus, whom you are are persecuting. What we do or don't do to the least of the church is what we do or don't do to Jesus. And true disciples will love one another and serve the least brother or sister with compassion. And in doing so, they unconsciously, unconsciously serve Christ. And this is what Jesus wants our testimony to the world to look like. In John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you have love for one another. I would hear sometimes, not here of course, but sometimes people would complain to me that they go to church so often. I find that ironic because I literally come here every day. So they, I go to church so often. Nah, you don't count. You're a pastor. It's like, okay. But you know what I think? I think people like that if, that, if that was their thought, I think people like that don't go nearly enough, nearly enough, because how odd would it be if I told my wife, Esther, I think I see you too often. I already spent time with you yesterday. Again? Come on. I would not have a wife. <laughs> how, so the question is, how do you love the people in the church? And I get that some people have interpreted this, my brothers, as all poor people. That is not, that's not the interpretation. It's pretty absurd if you take that interpretation. Contextually, it has no congruity, but it doesn't. So this brothers is talking about his disciples. It's not all poor people. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel concerned for the poor and oppressed. Quite the contrary. The Bible admonishes all of us to be concerned for the welfare of the poor. Deuteronomy 15:11, Matthew 22, Galatians 2:10, they were eager to help the poor. But that isn't the point of Jesus' teaching here, okay? And then he ends it with, and these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. My friends, eternal is forever. Either you will be eternally punished or you will have eternal life. This is the doctrine of the final judgment. This final judgment will demonstrate the perfect justice of God and everyone will get exactly what they fairly deserve. As you leave, as you go to bed tonight, ask yourself, are you a sheep or are you a goat? And I want you to know this truth. Only God can change the heart. Only God can change the heart. Let's pray.